It's Wednesday, November 6th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. For weeks, Trump administration officials have been filing into Capitol Hill to testify behind closed doors about Ukraine. Now, the transcripts of those hearings are coming out. Then, nine U.S. citizens were murdered by drug cartel members in northern Mexico this week. And the tragedy has put a spotlight on Mexico's anti-violence policies. And finally, why second place isn't so bad after all. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by Spotify. The most complicated story today is about the impeachment inquiry. Remember, behind closed doors, three House committees have been hearing from a bunch of diplomats and political appointees who have been involved with U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine. Now, the transcripts from those closed-door hearings are coming out. And we're noticing two overarching themes emerge. One centers on the outsized role of President Trump's personal lawyer, and the other centers on how the State Department has dealt with him. That's what we're going to get into today. So we'll jump right in, starting with Rudy Giuliani. Former mayor of New York City and now personal lawyer to the president, Giuliani doesn't have an official role in the Trump administration. But he's reportedly had Trump's ear when it comes to U.S. policy with Ukraine. Here's how. According to the testimonies of State Department officials, he told Trump that the Ukrainians are corrupt and that they tried to influence the 2016 election against him. He's also pushed the theory that former VP Joe Biden's son had done something wrong in his business dealings in Ukraine, which Giuliani's been claiming a lot, especially on TV. If a vice president of the United States goes somewhere and extorts the president of that country or bribes the president of that country to get his son out of trouble, I'd find it extraordinary if they didn't investigate. So far, no evidence has come to light actually backing Giuliani's claims. While he's been talking to the president and on TV, he's not talking to House investigators. But between these transcripts and his trips to meet with Ukrainian officials, we are learning more about just how involved Giuliani was in terms of shaping U.S. foreign policy with Ukraine. When State Department officials tried to talk to the president about Ukraine, Trump would literally tell them to go talk to Rudy instead. And the officials did. Giuliani's name comes up hundreds of times across some of these new transcripts. The diplomats said Giuliani wanted the Ukrainian president to announce an investigation into the 2016 election and into Biden. Giuliani also insisted that he sign off on whatever statement the Ukrainian president gave to announce this investigation. The effect all of this was having was that Ukrainian officials started thinking that he was their go-to guy instead of the people actually working for the U.S. government. Giuliani has claimed he was working for the U.S. government, though the former special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, said that was, quote, not the truth, that Giuliani was the one directing U.S. policy toward Ukraine and getting everyone else, including the president, on board as he went. Meanwhile, the person who's supposed to be overseeing these kinds of diplomatic relationships is the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. According to the officials who've testified, Pompeo didn't appear to be challenging Giuliani's involvement. Instead, he was kind of just annoyed with him. According to the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, Pompeo said at one point, quote, it's something we have to deal with. He allegedly even rolled his eyes. So much shade. But what's also emerged from these transcripts is how little the State Department leaders like Pompeo backed up these diplomats while Giuliani was taking the lead. 
Last spring, when Trump and Giuliani started to attack the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, Pompeo and other political appointees stayed quiet. And that decision to not defend Yovanovitch has rattled career diplomats in a way that's become very clear through these new transcripts. We might hear more about that soon. Today, again, behind closed doors, House committees heard from the third highest ranking official at the State Department, David Hale. And he was expected to say that the State Department thought that defending Yovanovitch might upset Giuliani, since he wanted her fired. And that would basically back up these other officials who say the State Department hasn't been doing enough to defend its own diplomats. So what's the skim? A lot of new information has been coming out of these closed-door impeachment hearings. These hearings started weeks ago, but we didn't start getting the full transcripts until this week. So it's been a bit of stop and go. Ultimately, the question Democrats are trying to answer is, do the allegations made in these hearings amount to high crimes and misdemeanors by the president? You know, causes for impeachment? That's still TBD. But we'll learn soon enough. Earlier today, the House Intelligence Committee announced it's going to hold open public hearings starting next week. That means we'll soon hear directly from some of the people who were interviewed behind closed doors. Prepare the tea. But even if these officials are talking more, a lot of people might not be listening. According to a new poll by Monmouth University, 62% of Trump supporters say they don't think there's anything the president could do to make them not like him anymore. Which means if Democrats do end up moving to impeach him, it may be harder than they think to get enough Republican lawmakers on board to ultimately send him packing. Coming up, the U.S. is in the middle of a different diplomatic dilemma after a tragedy earlier this week in northern Mexico. That's next. We wanted to take a minute and recommend another podcast we think you'd like, from Gimlet and Esther Perel. It's called Where Should We Begin? Step into the office of iconic couples therapist Esther Perel and listen as real couples anonymously bear the raw, intimate, and profound details of their story. It's a space for people to be heard and understood. It's also a place for us to listen and feel empowered in our own relationships. Get new episodes of Where Should We Begin first on Spotify. Follow and listen for free. Earlier this week, three women and six children were murdered by a drug cartel in northern Mexico. All nine were dual U.S.-Mexico citizens. There have been a ton of headlines about this crime. It's gotten a lot of coverage on cable TV. And it's put the Mexican government in the hot seat over its apparent inability to curb the violence there. Violent crime in Mexico has been an issue for decades, thanks in large part to demand for drugs in the U.S. The demand for drugs has created this big market for cartels and other criminal groups to make money. Cartels often wage deadly battles to control territory, and they bribe police and politicians to stay out of trouble. That, in turn, lets cartels basically chase out local governments, leading people feeling unsafe to leave, maybe even leave for the U.S. To fight drug smuggling, the U.S. launched a war on drugs under President Richard Nixon. And over the years, Mexico's helped with that on and off. Mexico really got on board with the strategy of fighting cartels directly in 2006. But that hasn't stopped the violence. 300,000 people have been murdered since the cartel war began, and the cartels are still around. Last year, the murder rate hit an all-time high. And when Mexicans went to the polls to pick a new president, 
they picked one who said he had a new idea about how to end the violence. That man was Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He's known as AMLO. And instead of just fighting the cartels, he wants to focus on the root causes that lead people to join these cartels in the first place. He's tried to create jobs, clean up corruption, and promised major new infrastructure projects. Even if these things work in the long term, the latest crime data hasn't improved. This year is on pace to set a new record for murders in Mexico. There's one every 15 minutes or so. And the attack on this family near the U.S. border this week is causing some people to lose patience with AMLO's anti-crime approach. Here was Republican Senator Tom Cotton on Fox News last night. The only thing that can counteract bullets is more and bigger bullets. If the Mexican government cannot protect American citizens in Mexico, then the United States may have to take matters into our own hands. Yesterday, President Trump tweeted that it was time for Mexico to, quote, wage war on the drug cartels and wipe them off the face of the earth. And he said the U.S. would help. Thus far, Mexico's president has said, no, thank you. He says he's going to keep using hugs, not bullets, to defeat the cartels. But this week's attack is putting pressure on Mexico's president to show results in stopping violence. And it's also putting the phrase, the war on drugs, back in the headlines. Sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. Voters in New York City voted last night to change how they vote. Pretty meta, huh? Soon, they'll be able to start ranking candidates by preference. It's called ranked choice voting. Here's how it works. Most people in the U.S. vote for just one candidate. Ranked choice voting means in addition to picking your favorite candidate, you can pick a second, third, fourth, or even fifth favorite. If one candidate gets a majority of first choice votes, they win. But if that doesn't happen, the candidate with the fewest first choice votes is eliminated from the running. But the ballots of the people who voted for the loser, they live on. Their second choice picks are then doled out to candidates still in the race. If a candidate still doesn't have a majority after that, this goes on and on down the list until someone wins. New York City's not alone in this. The state of Maine has already started voting this way. Fun fact, it's also how Oscar voters pick best picture. Some supporters say ranked choice voting makes elections less partisan because frontrunners might mellow out if they're trying to be someone's second pick instead of just firing up the base. Another benefit? You know how some people say, vote for the person who'll win, not the person you want to win? Ranked choice voting allows people to say, vote for a Green Party or a Libertarian candidate and still pick a major party candidate as their second fave. The nonprofit group Fair Vote skimmed the benefits like this. Sometimes voters feel pressured to vote for the lesser of two evils. Ranked choice voting allows people to vote for their favorite candidate, not just against the candidates they dislike. This trend has already caught on overseas, in countries like Australia, Ireland, and Scotland. And after last night's vote, it could end up becoming more of a thing in the U.S. too. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to add the skim to your morning routine, you can sign up for our free newsletter, The Daily Skim, right on our website at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox. <laughs>